morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Welcome back to yet another Locked On Sound podcast. Joining me as always today is my co-host and co-partner, Hunter Trumbull. How's it going, Willie? Today we're at a special place. We've uh, we finally made a trip up to Lansing to... I'll let you guys say the full name of it. <laughs> the Lansing Customer Service Center. Customer Service Center. Uh, we have two really informational, important guests with us here today, and this uh, is going to be a pretty interesting topic to go over. So we'll start off with what you guys' names are, titles, what you guys do, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm Shannon Stemley. I'm formerly a student worker of Dunn's, and I'm currently studying uh, my working on my master's degree at Louisiana State University. I'm Don Ayers. I'm with the Wildlife Division with the Michigan DNR, and uh, I am very involved with the Waterfall and Wetland uh, program as well as the Woodcock program, and I am, for this case anyway, the uh, bird banding program coordinator. So yeah, the main topics we'll be talking about today is a lot about um, banding birds in Michigan, kind of the information around it, um, all the data it gathers and stuff like that. And then I believe Shannon has some stuff to talk about, about what she's working on over at Louisiana State University as well. So uh, I guess we'll just get an overview from you right from the start. You know, what, how many people you guys have for your team that bands, where you guys do it at in the state of Michigan, you know, the, the overview of it kind of thing. Sure. So my duck banding team started in uh, 2014, and uh, I've typically had uh, four seasonal workers work for me the entire summer uh, to ban ducks across southern Michigan. So um, it's it's varied since COVID. Um, we didn't have anybody in 2020, but I had two in 21. So it's kind of varied, uh, but usually we try to get four people on to do that, and they band with me. Um, my students, I have a couple of students um, each year. And um, so, yeah, they get to go out and, and give them a hand as well. My students really focus on data entry. Have all this data that they're bringing in from the field's got to be, you know, put into the system. So my students do a lot of that as well. So Now, how many birds in a given season will the five of you guys ban, you think? So we're, we average, I would say, close to about 2,100 mallards, um, about uh, 22,000, 2,100 wood ducks a year. Um, so yeah, it's 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 busy. Um, we're usually in the top five or six in the country for mallard banding and wood duck banding. So oh wow, up here in Michigan too. Yeah, that's crazy. Now, can you give us an overview of what a day would consist of? Of I don't know, like finding the ducks. I don't get find a feed or a nesting ground or something, and then getting your hands on the ducks to just to ban them. Like, what does a full rundown of a, of going through a mallard duck look like? So typically what we've got is a lot of preseason scouting. So we know where our sites are well before um, we can start trapping. We start trapping on July 1st, which is the beginning of the preseason banding period for the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. So um, by then, we've already, we already know where we're going to be. These uh, sites are very traditional. Um, we found most of our sites back in, like I said, in 2014 when we started. So we've added some sites here and there. But for the most part, uh, we know where we're going to be going. We know... Um, pretty much how many ducks we should expect to get there when, we, when we're there. But um, we'll have traps down and bait in July. And um, we start usually banding um, last week of July, great first week of August, and it'll go from there. Uh, so 
typically my team is at the barn and in the morning and they're loading up a lot of bait um, and making sure that they have enough bands for the day and that kind of thing. And we can't, we, we, we run 35 to 38 trap sites a summer, so we can't, you know, run them every day. Um, but they're baiting consistently. And then each trap is usually set once a week. So they've got so many to, to check on a Tuesday or a Thursday, whatever. Uh, those usually are big days. Um, and yeah, they, they head right out to the first trap and uh, they get on it. So it's um, get there create your ducks out of the traps, band them, release, on to the next one. Now, when you guys go in there and check your traps, is there a somewhat predetermined number for, you know, how many mallards compared to teal you're doing or how many hens compared to drakes you're doing, or does it just kind of go off of what you what you get? Uh, we band whatever we catch. So um, a lot of our traps, there's not a lot of mix. You'd be very surprised. Um, our, a lot of our traps are... Um, very specific for mallards, and it's not by intent, it's just what's there. Um, the mallards and wood ducks, which are two target species, aren't really intermingling as much as you might think. Um, so I, we know ahead of time, just based on the tradition of how these traps have been going for years, that this is a mallard site or this is a wood duck site. So we should, we should know what we expect. Uh, we put uh, trail cameras on all of our traps, so we're really keeping close eye of what's been there. And we don't even set the trap until I know we've got enough ducks uh, to make it worth our while. So we, we already know if it's gonna be a lot of wood ducks or it's gonna be a lot of mallards or, you know, that kind of thing, but yeah. So you're setting the trap remotely? Nope, we set them right there. So right. we'll bait everything like on a Monday, we'll go in there on, and some of those traps, we might set those for Monday to check them again on Tuesday. Um, so yeah, we are, we're there. We have to make sure everything is exactly correct. Um, I don't want any issues with raccoons or ducks getting entangled in the traps. So everything's we check everything completely over before we set it. So now, how many birds will a single trap gather up? So it it depends uh, because we do put uh, cameras on these traps. We do know um, a lot of what's going on there ahead of time. So if I'm looking on the the camera and I'm seeing you know 100 150 mallards at a site. Uh, and the trap's not big enough, we're going to swap it out with a bigger trap in there. But like I said, traditionally, we know, you know, that these are good-sized traps, and uh, I should expect good numbers. But we've had them. I think the most I've caught in uh, one of my uh, walk-in traps has been 180, 190 wow. at a time. Uh, the swimming traps aren't nearly as big. A lot of that is on purpose. I don't, I don't necessarily want to catch a ton of ducks in some of those traps. If we're going to run them all summer, I don't need to catch them all in one day. So I can, I can kind of let that... Um, you know, a few at a time, and so we'll catch, you know, 20, 30 at a time in those, and um, sometimes less, sometimes more, tens, but um, yeah, up, upwards of close to 200 at a time, uh, which is a pretty good haul, if we can catch that, that's a good haul, that's taking a lot of time in the field to process that many ducks, so, yeah. Oh, that's, that's pretty, I didn't think 200, 200 attracts a lot. It's yeah, a lot that's a lot of birds to work it's, with. It's a lot of work. <clears throat> no. That's one of the reasons we have two people on each one of our teams that are going out to because you can't, there's no way you should expect, you know, two people to be able to do that quick. So I want them to have, you know, enough, you know, they can, they, they work at a good pace. And I, I mean, we're aging every, aging and sexy every bird. We want to make sure everything is good and having, you know, somebody to help get those birds out of the crate. And, you know, another opinion, if you're, you know, this one's a little bit iffy, you can ask your partner and say, you know, between the two of them. So, yeah. Now, I'm curious, how do you guys go about aging the ducks? Obviously, sexing the ducks is, I, I think that's one part that's not so bad, but aging the ducks, how do you guys go about that? 
so yeah, the sexing part's really easy. Um, I think it's really easy. I mean, it, it takes some time to get there. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time, so it's it's pretty easy for me. But uh, the aging in the preseason period of time when we're doing um, our our duck banding um, big volumes like that, we're looking at plumage. So we're looking at um, the tail uh, feathers. Um, they're the, some of the last ones that they're going to replace. So you're you're going to put that duck around and you're going to check out the tail. And you're looking for feather wear and uh, replacement. So as they replace their feathers with adult feathers, the hatchier birds, the, the young juvenile birds, they'll replace those with adult feathers. And uh, so you're looking at the rate of how that's been going. If they have um, all adult feathers, it's an adult bird. If they don't, if there's any juvenile feathers in there at all, then it's going to be a hatchier bird. So. so you worked with him on his team for, as a seasonal worker, right? Um, in, a, in a way, yes. Uh, I actually started as what's called a glass and scholar student. So I, when I was at Michigan State, which is where I, I did my undergrad, um, there's a program called the Glass and Scholars Program that places undergrads that are in fish and wildlife type uh, degrees with state agencies or other places like Ducks Unlimited and things like that. So they place student workers essentially with these places. And I was placed actually originally with a different unit in the division, which was the Public Outreach and Engagement Unit. So I started with them um, did some things, and then I eventually started goose banding a lot, and then Don hired me as a student worker after my time as a glassman was over. So I was a student worker for two seasons, two years. Gotcha. Yeah. <clears throat> Shannon impressed me with her, um, we're going to call it a spunky attitude. <laughs> I, I, I really like having students um, that work for me who are um, very, you know, curious, hardworking, that kind of go-getter attitude, and um, it's they're not that easy to find most of the time. And we were goose banding, and uh, Shannon was out with us, and uh, the first couple of sites we did, everything was going pretty well, and Shannon was listening really well, and uh, she was, you know, doing what I needed her to do. We'd get to a couple other sites, and Shannon's directing traffic, and I was like, <laughs> that's, that's right there, that's what I'm looking for. So, <laughs> When I had the opportunity to hire Shannon, I did, and uh, Shannon was fantastic, one of the best students I ever had. She was great, so I miss her on a daily, daily. She, was, she kept my life together. It was great having her. So doing that kind of work with them and you know, getting the experience that you did over a few years, did you have some certain aspects you loved and then other aspects that you dreaded doing, or...? Yeah, so Don, Don, Don talked a little bit about the... There's got to be some stories in here somewhere. The aspect of that. So, I mean, we're putting out a lot of bands, and those bands, every single one of them has to be manually entered into a database, the age of the bird, the sex of the bird, exactly where it was banded, and all that information. So there were many days sitting behind a computer, adult male, juvenile male, <laughs> what location it is, who banded it, so... That stuff's, it wasn't horrible, but I wouldn't uh, choose to do it on the daily. <laughs> but um, obviously, handling live birds, there's nothing like it. So it was always, it was always an adventure. <laughs> I mean, we're doing 10,000, over 10,000 birds in Michigan yeah. between our waterfowl, woodcock, peregrine falcons, and all that data comes yes. into me. And, uh, you know, there's auxiliary markers. Uh, we've mm -hmm. got uh, Ben's project with, you know, GPS transmitters. And so there's a lot of details for all that and it's really nice for me to have it all come in look at it and say yep i'm gonna let you handle that <laughs> and it's really good though when you have a student that can handle all that too and you're just like i don't have to worry about it she'll handle it so but it, it i do 
I do feel for her. I did feel for her <laughs> often. It's like all my students, it's like, oh, those, those stacks just keep getting higher. So, yeah, it's a lot of work. Catching the mistakes of Catching the random mistakes. things. Like, That's yes. definitely not it. Yep. <laughs> not, not quite right. But... So what kind of mistakes do you run into when you're filing that? Like just... Um, handwriting mistakes. You're writing in the field sometimes on paper <clears throat> that's getting soaking wet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, smudged handwriting, not knowing where you are yes. <laughs> is sometimes a problem. The Woodcock banding program, they're in the middle of nowhere in some cases. So trying to figure out where they are to put the correct information into the system is sometimes a little bit challenging. The Woodcock Bander group is challenging. They, they ban three or four at, at one site, mm -hmm. and then they're off with their dogs to find more. Mm -hmm. So there's never, like, you know, Canada geese will do 70, 80, 101 sites. So you can, you can do that data pretty quick, but the Woodcock Banders are, they are, and they know that. I mean, they, they, it's the nature of finding Woodcock and doing it. So they're very aware, but um, they're trying to do it by town range section. And we've moved beyond that years ago. So they're, some of them are, you know, newer and they're trying to do GPS locations of their site and we're converting things. And it's, it's no. a lot for three bands. At a time. <laughs> it's like, we do, you know, average 850 to a thousand woodcock a year. And so when you start breaking it down, doing three or four at a time, it's, it's challenging work. Yeah. Now I imagine handling a Canada goose can't be as easy or fun as handling a mallard or a wood duck, right? I mean, they got to get a little bit more feisty when you're trying to band them, right? Canada geese are challenging. Yeah, I mean the, the goslings aren't so bad. Yeah. Uh, we we don't band any goslings that are still yellow fluffy, you know, goslings. So they've got to be um, pretty good size by the time we're dealing with them. And then we we might catch them uh, in the corral when we're rounding up geese, but we're not going to band those small ones. But um, they're pretty easy. But the you get an adult bird, um, especially really when, angry adult. Yeah, bird. <laughs> they've been handled, especially some of these that are you know we, they're previously banded years ago. We've got a couple. Uh, sites that have birds that have been there 10, 12, 13 years, uh, they know the routine and they are extremely difficult to deal with. And um, yeah, they, especially when you're uh, new at it and you're tentative about how how hard I can hold them and how, you know, it, it takes some time to be comfortable with them. And uh, I don't have too much of a problem, but I've been doing it a long time. So for me, it's very entertaining to watch the new people. They show up sure. and I'm like, come on, let's get the geese out of the corral. And they're grabbing them and it's like, oh no, you better hold them a lot tighter than that. And yeah. it's not just their feet, you know, they're, they're beating it with their wings. They're, they're coming at you. Do you lose quite a few the first you know, time or two and you, you take them out? You lose a goose banding with me and you're buying everybody lunch. So <laughs> there is definitely, uh, uh, you don't want to be losing these. Yeah. Our goose round up involves a lot of kayaking and we trap at a lot of wastewater treatment plants, that kind of thing on those uh, retention ponds. So, um, yeah, somebody's going to be in the kayaks and not going to be me. You <laughs> you certainly going in, so. Yeah. I love kayaking. Yeah, some people do. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> not even seeing exactly what I'm talking about. It's great. Uh, I, now I'm going to move on a little bit. So you, you came here, worked for two years and at, at, under him, and then you went down to Louisiana State to yep. get your master's, correct? Yep. And so what are you getting your master's in? Um, the degree, like I said earlier, is technically renewable natural resources, but my concentration is in waterfowl. Okay. And then so like on a, when you graduate, your hope is to do what or go where? Yep. Uh, ideally, I'd love to come back to Michigan. Obviously, it's my home state. Um, I loved working for the division, so I would love to come back. Um, the, the application... Water or waterfowl biologists, uh, biologists in general, but.
Gotcha. And now what, that's a pretty specific degree you're going to get at Louisiana State. So what does your day-to-day -day when you're actually at college look like? I mean, how many, it's a very specific oh, oh, sure degree is. field. So. so fish and wildlife um, graduate degrees are a little bit different than I think some degrees. So we have um, like a project. So I have a very specific research project and then I also take classes. The way I've kind of decided to think about it is I'm a student, but my full-time job is my research project. Gotcha. So, of course, I have my classes, really stats-heavy, um, specific waterfowl classes, management classes, things like that. But, um, so my project, very specifically, is identifying the source origins of Louisiana harvested waterfowl. Um, so I work with a few different species, but essentially what happens is I work with six hunting clubs in Louisiana and three hunting clubs in Arkansas. They collect ducklings for me from their daily harvest. I get a duckling from every single duck that they harvest. Um, they freeze them, I bring them back to my lab, and I sit at my lab table and I age and sex every single duckling. Um, <laughs> so your training here came in handy then. <laughs> it sure did. It sure did. Um, um, for my species, I work with seven different species. So I work with mallards, um, blue and green winged teal, model ducks, um, pintail, gadwall, lesser stop. Gotcha. So I work with all of them. My hunting clubs give me a wing from everything. So part of my job is to sift through and figure out which species are, you know, actually the species that I'm working with, um, discard the rest of them. But so after I have all of my wings, age and sex and such, I collect a primary feather from those. So those are the feathers that are grown up on the breeding grounds. So I just finished um, sending in those samples for what's called stable isotope analysis. So st stable isotope analysis will essentially um, be able to tell us where that bird groups feathers. So I collect my wing from my hunt club, I have my one little feather, I send it for analysis, and they can tell me um, based off of deuterium, <laughs> it's getting a little fancy now. <laughs> um, so basically it's the amount of hydrogen um, in the groundwater from precipitation things. So you're are you collecting mainly like <laughs> migration data from that or is that just Yeah, so all of these birds are obviously harvested in Louisiana. Right. So we're trying to figure out where those birds are coming from. Obviously I have a range of different species. There are some species like mallards that we have a lot of banding data on. So we have a good idea of where those birds are coming from, but we're really interested in the specific species like green winged teal who are breeding really far up into the boreal. Um, we're trying to figure out where our Louisiana harvested ducks are coming from so we can better um, manage those areas where those birds are. Gotcha. Now, do you have any data you can share with us or not at the moment? Um, my feather samples just got sent in. Okay, so gotcha. <laughs> I, I won't have that back until a while. Okay, but gotcha. I'll have two years of data collection. So I have um, this past hunting season and then this coming hunting season as well. Gotcha. So do you have... Another two years till you graduate, or About a year and a half? Year and a half? Yep. Gotcha. Way harder than my degree. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> I understood about half of what you said there, so. It's rather complicated. <laughs> um, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit to something you said earlier when you were talking about the different species you guys banned and the, you mentioned uh, falcons and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Now, do you guys banned a lot of non-migratory birds, or like, do you get any data from non-migratory birds that kind of stick to their their region or do you just avoid those no so what 
because it's you know the way that our program is funded uh, we are focusing on the, the species that we have quotas given to us from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we are focused on getting, um, uh, we have a quota of 2,400 Canada geese. We crush that every year. Uh, 2,000 mallards and 1,100 wood ducks. And that's what they, that's the minimum that they feel that we need from Michigan to be able to run all the analysis that they're doing on their end. So as a partner in, in a, you know, continental species like that, we're, we, we are, we want to meet our quotas minimally. So we do way more than that. Uh, but you know, when it comes to funding, you got to be, you got to be careful what your, um, where your funding sources are, what you can use that money for. So we don't have a need to ban others. Uh, we ban peregrine falcons. It's a, uh, the falcon program. Uh, they just were recently delisted from an endangered species of threatened in Michigan. So, uh, we've been banning falcons in Michigan since the eighties. And, and I say that like, you know, we do it, but it's not a, a huge number. I, we maybe do 20 or 30 a year. Um, it's it's not the um, easiest to get coordinated and all that kind of thing, but we don't do anything other than the falcons and uh, woodcock. We like I said before, that's a game species, but we're doing you know close to a thousand woodcock and some years a little bit more than that a year. But we're focusing on on the waterfowl because that's what our funding is requiring us to do. Gotcha. Have you noticed any migration shifts at all over the past few years? Has it stayed relatively constant? Um, I wouldn't say over the last few years, but I would say um, when you start looking at uh, one of the things that Shannon did when she was working for me was we took our um, recovery rates from our, our birds and broke it down by decade. And when you start going back into the, and it's, it's, it's hard to do because we're banning so many more. This, you know, when you talk about the, the golden age of hunting, this is the golden age of banning right now. We are, the, not, the amount of data that we're getting is crazy compared to what it was back in like the 70s or the 60s. But Shannon went back through and got data from all of those decades and put together maps and you could see how our birds are adjusting to um, not flying as far south. So when you hear the southern states saying, we're not getting these birds, our, ba our band data shows that. Our mallards don't really go too far. If they leave Michigan at all, um, they're going to, you know, as far south as like the Ohio River Valley. Um, basically, just like our geese, they go as far as they have to to find open water and food. Um, so if there's not a lot of ice and snow, that's where they'll be. Um, our birds are shot all over the, you know, Atlantic and Mississippi Flyway, obviously, but never, it's not the volume that you would think. Um, most of our birds are, um, they, they have to be pushed out of here. And wood ducks are completely different. They have behave the same now as they always did. Um, and wood ducks make a big jump from Michigan down to the Gulf Coast or to uh, the Atlantic Coast of, like, um, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, into Florida. And they, they have been doing that. That's just how they've always behaved. So that hasn't really changed. But mallards and geese, for sure, have shortstopped a lot more than what they used to. Do you attribute that just to milder winters, or? Yeah, I mean that's what, yeah. I, I don't. And, and it's just just the observations when you start looking at you know like, like I said the, the data is what it is. You're, you know the hunters are providing all that data back by where they're shooting our birds. So when you start looking at it, and yeah, there's there's fewer hunters, so you're probably having you know fewer people shooting, uh, you know, banded birds, but the volume of bands we're putting out is helping with that. So mm -hmm. when you're looking at it across, you know, the entire flyway, yeah, I mean, it's it's fairly obvious that the milder winters, we didn't have much of winter this year, and um, our birds, you know, even if they do leave, the geese are pretty well known, they'll fly out for a storm into Indiana, Ohio, maybe even Kentucky, it warms back up and they come back, and uh, mm -hmm. that's just how they behave. Um, 
I think they're adapting really, really well to what the weather is doing these days. So, um, climate change is what it is. It's definitely changing how, um, especially mallards and canopies are behaving here in Michigan. So, with a less of, you know, a southern migration being down in the southern states, do you think that their home population is growing at all to make up for that, or is it just they're kind of getting the lesser end of the stick down south? Home populations as in birds that were hatched out. Yeah. Um, so we in Michigan and the states up here are breeding states. So we have lots of breeding birds. Down in the south, that's a wintering area. So birds from north are going there to winter and then they're leaving to go back to the breeding areas. So Louisiana really doesn't have high numbers of birds that are breeding gotcha. in the state. Um, wood ducks, black belly whistling ducks. Um, and model ducks and a few mallards and such. That's really their only breeding bird populations. Gotcha. Um, they have resident geese and such, but um, so yeah, their birds are coming from elsewhere, which is what I'm trying to figure out. Right. That's, that's part of the project, <laughs> yeah. but it, you know, that's the thing though is as everything's warming up like this, if those birds don't go down there, they don't have birds. So right. Louisiana gets a lot of their birds from the Mississippi. You know, they're coming down from the the prairies and you know that way but um that's just not where our michigan birds are going so it's it's very interesting part of one of the i thought what when her project was announced and they were looking for a student i thought it was a really cool project because it's going to be able to really show a lot of information that we couldn't get just with bands uh yeah bands can give you um you know point a and point b but in between that we you know it's it's a it's a it's a small number of birds where she can look at like she said, every single bird that they're shooting at these clubs and really get a much different uh, view than what they can just with bands. So. Right. Um, some species are breeding super high up into Canada and into the north, and banding locations like what we've done isn't super feasible. So birds um, like green seal that I mentioned earlier, a lot of those birds are being banded already. They've already been on their migration for quite a bit of time, and they're getting banded in the United States. They're not getting banned up into their breeding grounds. So we're going to be able to tease apart some of that information with, with my results when I get those back. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you said that because it's, it is true that just because we ban a bird here in Michigan doesn't mm -hmm. make it a Michigan bird. Right. Um, those birds are, you know, especially teal. Yeah, they're, by the time we're catching those in September, the teal season's opening is September 1st. Right. So you, it's very obvious that they are on the move before that to get to Michigan. So do we do we have nesting teal? I'm sure we do, but mm -hmm. to a number like that, not even close um so yeah that's and that's probably one of the reasons we don't ban as many teal pintails which and we just don't have the volume of them ban, uh, uh, breeding here to catch that many to ban so her her stuff is yeah it's fabulous so yeah that bird can be shot in Louisiana she can find out you know it came up from the very top part of you know the Canadian prairies it's gonna be very very fascinating stuff yeah I had no clue you could even date their feathers like that to figure out where yeah. I mean it makes sense when you think about it but I never yeah, it's crazy. Never um, thought about it. A lot of work using isotopes has been done up in like these breeding states in Michigan. Part of Ben's project has isotopes um, incorporated, but not not a lot has been done in uh, wintering areas. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a really big data set. It's gonna be a game changer. Yeah, yeah. it really will. It's be. gonna kick off a lot of questions, which every good research project should. It's yeah. gonna give us more questions uh, to keep going on, so more students can keep working on these things. But go. It's going to be really cool. I'm excited. So you said you'll have that data back in like a year and a half-ish? 
I'll, I should be graduating in approximately that amount of time. So I won't, my data won't be available to the public until, until I'm actually done. Gotcha. Okay. Are you guys seeing a, a big shift? <clears throat> I don't know how much goes into it. I'm like the GPS side of things, GPS tracking and watching flights back and forth, mm -hmm. or I don't know how many of those are being put on birds if they're a reasonable resource or if they're kind of every once in a while thing. Like the net collar sort of thing? I, I don't know exactly what goes into them. I, I mean, I did, I've never even seen a band. The first band I ever saw was a GPS tracked um, uh, Penn Mallard down by us. Um, but that was it. So I did. Can't break what it down to be fair. There's probably a good chance. So I, I think um, so the GPS transmitters are a game changer for a lot of um, research projects. Um, I'm sure that you know you've seen some of these net collars where they've got a GPS transmitter attached to the net collar, and that's a really easy way to do them with Canada geese. Um, and we've done a meat swan project here in Michigan where we had GPS transmitters on uh, the collars that we put on uh, mute swans here in Michigan. Um, for ducks, I, I think, yeah, it's an absolute game changer on how uh, we can find more information about movement patterns and that sort of thing. Um, the birds that we put, we've helped Ben put on, I don't know, 120 some. He's done way more than that. I think he's, for his project, he's close to 400 uh, transmitters across all the states that he's working in. Um, yeah, we're learning all kinds of stuff about these ducks and uh, a lot of uh, movement patterns, but also um, nesting site locations where they're selecting to you know, put their nests in and where they winter and you know what, yeah, it, it, there's just the, the answers are, it's, it's how deep you want to get into the data. There's so much there, but he's collecting a point like every 30 minutes of that duck's entire time that's out there doing it. Hmm. So it's, uh, you can put maps together that are really interesting to see what those birds do. Some of them are really, they're, they're homebodies and they barely move at all. Others are, they're very individualistic. The wintering stuff has been very interesting to me because um, I know where they go during the hunting season, but the hunting season ends and they still have, they're still out there somewhere. The transmitters are letting us see, you know, sometimes they're still moving. Um, we have several that are, you know, wintering out in Virginia and that kind of thing. And, it's pretty interesting how what time of year they come back, and we have Michigan birds on nests, and those birds are still not here yet. Uh, that kind of thing. So that was kind of interesting to see earlier this spring, um, how much later some of them uh, nest. Others we got, we've had ducklings for some time, and we had others that are just now um, starting to get to really serious incubation. So it's they're all very individualistic, but stuff you really wouldn't know unless you could basically find out where they are every day and every minute of every day. So. I think they're a game changer, and they're just going to get smaller, and we're going to be able to get more information out of them as they get smaller. So. Now, if, you're, if your team is banding, you said about 2,200 a year is yep. what you're looking at. Yep. Do you guys think you see relatively the same amount taken out of the population each year by hunters, or is there a growing number of banded birds? Like, is it, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but. How many bands are shot per per year de depends on like how many you throw on. So like if you throw 22 on, are you seeing a thousand of them go die? Or I was yeah. gonna say, I, I don't see bands being shot as a prevalent thing. So yeah, yeah it's, uh, so we so we look at what they call direct band recovery. So uh, if you put a band on a bird in August of this year, um, a direct band recovery would be the bird being recovered during the, this coming hunting season. Um, so basically it's not a whole cycle. It's just, it, it gets that far and it's shot and that's a direct recovery. So we, we track the direct recoveries um, very close. 
and we're, we're very interested to see um, numbers, but also where they're being shot. That's how I can tell you that, you know, that Ohio River Valley is kind of one of the borders that we've got for winter. Um, but if you look at just direct band recoveries, we're shooting pretty close to the Mallards around 11 and a half. Soft continually from there. Uh, Canada geese is a little bit higher than that, 13-15% of those we shot the first year, and wood ducks is way around 85 to 9% the first year. So it, it depends. Over the course of the time of that bird having a band, uh, mallards is 20% uh, of them will be recovered, and geese is 35 to 40% of them. I actually recovered. So hmm. geese it's a lot higher. <coughs> It's a lot lower than I thought it would have been. I was going to say, well, we can't find one, so I mean, well, that's true. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but I also think part of it is, too, uh, you'd be surprised uh, the report rate isn't 100%. So not every band that somebody shoots do they report. Uh, some people, they don't even know, you know, they don't think it's a big deal to do it, so they'll shoot it. And they'll have a band, and they're like, oh, that's cool, but not really paying too close attention mm -hmm. to it. Some people are obsessed with the bands, and uh, you know you're going to get those. Um, so it kind of depends. And... You know, that's not accounting for, um, you know, birds that were shot, not found, um, you know, and birds that are, you know, they die from other things too, vehicle strikes, wires, um, predators. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole bunch of stuff. And, and a lot of those are never recovered. People are never going to find them. So you're dealing with, actually, I wouldn't know, I don't know if it's small. We, we're excited about 12%. It's, that's a great number for us, but uh, it, it probably small. It's, it sounds small, but it's, it's a good number. So we hear a lot of controversy about, you know, just people we hunt with debating about targeting bands and stuff like that when you're field hunting for geese. Does that, am I allowed to ask if you have an opinion on that? Like, oh, yeah, does it no, not really affect you guys? Do you like it because you get more data? How's, how's that no, work? No, actually we don't. Uh, it's, uh, so targeting is, um, a, it, it's a perceived issue. Um, could, it, could it be a, a serious thing? Absolutely, it could be. Uh, it screws up everything when you're, um, you know, the randomness of the sample is important. So if they're out there, you know, targeting a banded goose, for instance, or a net collar goose or whatever, you know, that special bird, um, it can throw things out of whack on, you know, it, it, it randomly. It, so it, you need a random sample, but what you're doing is you're, you're changing a lot of the randomness out of it when you do this. It make a lot of sense to that. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to tell you this without, you know, so you, I'll just give you this one. We've got a um, upper Mississippi uh, flyway states have had enough concern about Canada geese in particular that uh, a project has been ongoing. This is year three of it where we are putting um, black bands on Canada geese rather than the traditional silvery looking. That was my next question. Is yeah. Have you guys so, changed yeah. the color over so, to avoid that? So we, it's, but it, we, we didn't do it on all of them. So it's a, it's again, it's a random sample um, to see if the, um, re the report ratio is different for the black ones that you can't see as well versus the regular bands. And um, we'll do another year. We've put 800 on in Michigan so far, and we're going to do another five this year. Um, and are they out there? Well, sure, everybody knows they're out there now because they started shooting them. So it's not a big secret or anything like that. But it, it does, it, it should help um, to get an idea if band hunting, as it's called, is a, is a serious thing or not. Um, is it going to happen? Sure. Has it been happening? Well, yeah, we know that when we used to put Canada Goose neck collars on, uh, on these, those were targeted for death, basically. Um, 
a lot of illegal hunting too. You know, people would shoot them wherever they could find them. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that, that we do know that if you put a collar on a goose, the, the reporting and the recovery ratio is off the chart. Um, but, but that's how you find out, right? I mean, you, you can't just, you don't want to speculate too much. You want to know for sure. And that's when you always know for sure. Uh, the black bands that are going to be um, uh, interesting to see once they have all of these states participating. It's a lot of bands. It's like 3,000 bands a year across all the states. They should be able to figure it out pretty good if it's an issue or not. I was going to say, a lot of videos that i seen last year of people hunting, you know, they, they I don't know how, they always see the band in the air, but I do know a, a couple of videos people shot geese and then didn't know they had a band until they picked yep. the goose up. So yeah, I, I would hope that would help the, the mystery and the more making it... Uh, not as everybody shooting at the same bird, you know, we don't need Because I feel like the, it is almost like trophy hunting in a way. Yeah. yeah You're hunting is. to put it on yep. your lanyard. That's about yep. it. And I mean, I, I, I see it a lot of different ways. I'm a duck hunter myself. I'm a goose hunter. I understand the, uh, when I was, before I was doing this for a living, it was, that was awesome. You know, my dad shot a couple of banded birds back when I was a kid. Pretty neat. Um, I think a lot of it is the, uh, there's this perception that they're very rare. And in some cases they are, um, but it's probably not as, uh, I don't know, everybody's different. I, I don't find it as interesting probably because I do it all the time. <laughs> it's not as big of a deal to me, but, uh, and I've shot bandage birds and it's like, you know, that's great. Um, but I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't target them. I, don't, I just don't, I think it screws up a lot of our data and it, it inflates numbers in ways that we really don't want. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Now it's, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, like, how, so when you guys, when you see a tracked bird, a GPS bird get, get shot, obviously that bird stops moving. How do you want, you want the GPS back, I'm assuming, because they're expensive, they've got to be. Oh, they're expensive. How, <laughs> how, how hard, and if you know any kind of percentages in any way, how hard is it to get those back? It's not that hard. No? No? You just pull up and, and go, go get it? So... I mean, yeah, in general, it's, it's possible that way. So um, there's contact information on the side of the transmitter, and a lot of people who have found them dead or shot them, uh, the first thing they do is, after they freak out about shooting a transmitter, uh, is they get a hold of the contact on the side of the transmitter. Um, and then it's we, and I say we, I mean Ben, um, there's dummy transmitters that are dead ones that don't work or are made that way, and then can swap them out. So if you wanted to, I don't know, mount that hen and say that, you know, this is, she's got a band on one leg and she's got a transmitter. Uh, you can have one that looks exactly like the one and you get the real one back. And if it's, um, if it's still in good working shape, we're going to want it back. However, uh, we've had a lot of them that were shot that even a neck from a BD, um, either it'll ruin it or it's just not going to work. Um, they got a solar panel on the top. So if any of that doesn't work anymore, we just don't want it back. And then just keep it. And they're usually thrilled to be able to keep the original one. But um, we've had, I think Ben said, just a couple, um, maybe a handful of, they refuse to give them back. And that's, I mean, they shot it. It's fine. They can do that. Um, but part of the project is that we can, if we get it back, it's a good working or we'll get it right back out on the duck. And that gives gotcha. us more information down the road. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that is. I was so, I was so curious to see how that, how that ordeal went down because I know. Especially with people that we we work with, a lot of them, I don't say they don't care. They do care, but I think it's more of a, it's mine, you know, kind of thing. Like, yeah. oh, I'm not. But then I guess you know, it just depends on who you're dealing with. Yep. Uh, what else you got? I had a question. I forgot. No, you forgot. It. No, I forgot. It. Um, 
I'll go back to when we were talking about the colors of the bands. So you said you guys switched over and did 800 last year and 500 this year of the black bands. Is there a reason for not just switching to black entirely, whether it makes a difference or not? I mean... So yeah, we've got, we did eight, 800 the first two years combined. So yeah, oh, we've okay. got 800, 800 went out already and like some of their 500 this year. So it's 500 the first year, three last year. Um, yeah, because they're they're not um, cheap. So I think that's the big thing. Gotcha. I didn't know if it was price yeah. or if there was a no, it's a, better so, reason. Yeah, so we had to have these. These are regular bands that were pre-coded. So it's, you would just don't want to deal with it. And um, yeah, it's it's expensive, but it's also um, you don't want to uh, when you open the band to take it off the string to put it on the goose. That opening and closing, you can crack some of that, and so it, you know you can mar it up when you're putting it on with your pliers. And so it's not um, it's not a convenient, gotcha. easy way of doing things. We'd rather not have to do that. And I, I to be fair, I don't I don't know if we ever would. I don't think it's that important that we're going to have to spend a lot more money than we already do on bands. <laughs> budget would be well spent I mean, places. Yeah. yeah i think we can spend it better yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> now i don't know if you have any information on this or not but i was looking through your guys's website earlier in the lab's website and they were talking about uh the avian flu and blueing teal and how apparently they're one of the biggest carriers of it is what i read on the lab's website do you know anything the reasoning for that is there i don't um, that one, that's new to me. Um, it was a newer article that they had posted, but I had never heard of it before. And I was like, I wonder why, I don't know if it's because they travel I more. If... I think the only thing that I would speculate is exactly that, that they do travel extreme distances in migration compared to a lot of other birds. So maybe that was what they were talking about. But no, that when we were dealing with AI last year, it was mallards or ducks in Canada geese. Um, I think we found a coot, we found a mink swan, uh, a few gulls, that kind of thing, a ruddy duck. But it was... That's just my group. I, mean, I know there was other time birds, especially in the spring, but that my group is mostly dealing with Canada geese and mallards. Yeah, their website says that the research focuses on blooming teal due to their widespread distribution and suspected role in spreading the avian influenza. Yeah. So I didn't know if yeah, that's just me. Paper that I haven't seen that one. Gotcha. Okay. Teal. Teal. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't see a lot of teal, in all honesty. Um, not blue wings, especially. Yeah, I've got some pictures of blue wings, but it's it's yeah. before season. I don't have anything during season. We killed the purple green wings last year. Yeah, I think um, what five or six in total, the middle opener, and yeah, then the a couple more in the yeah, shy. Not not many, um, but that was the first time we'd ever seen teal, so they're not prevalent. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you guys, I mean, you're gonna see them before we do, but I don't know how many teal you guys deal with, but not very many. Um, the green wing teal, like if you go up to the like unmanaged waterfall areas up on Saginaw Bay, green wing teal are a big part of the bag when they're up there. So uh, they do shoot a lot of green wing teal. Blue wing teal have just always been that way in Michigan. By the time, so why we have a teal season now, try to capture those. They, they migrate so early. And so if you can get on them, then that's great. But it's kind of hit or miss with blue wings always. Green wings are a pretty important bird for us. Gotcha. Now I'm assuming you waterfall hunt as well, right? Don't. You don't? <laughs> I really like to. I grew up deer and turkey hunting and such, but okay. I was never super into waterfowl hunting. Just so. always been fascinated by the... Sort of. <laughs> um, so actually, when I started as a glass in, my bachelor's degree is not fish and wildlife. My bachelor's degree is environmental sustainability. 
Um, so that's why I was in public outreach and engagement. And then uh, kind of everything changed. <laughs> kind of, it really did. So, it really did. Yeah, someone's to thank for that. But yeah, so I, I didn't really want to do anything with Waterfall. And then all of a sudden I was like, yep, I'm going to get my master's degree. And everything has changed. Everything's so changed. Hmm. it's changing. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I'm sure you guys can imagine if you are um, a young college student, and you get thrown into the wildlife division and you get to be working with somebody like me who's going to say we are going to spend basically five months a year doing nothing but chasing ducks and once you do it and you are handling hundreds upon hundreds of birds and you know between the very involved with hens uh project in the spring catching hens um putting on transmitters it's very involved it's very hands-on I think a lot of people get into wildlife work with the intent of, I want to handle wildlife. And what you find is a lot of people get into it and find that there's a lot of computer work and it's a lot of dealing with the public. And, you know, it's you know, human wildlife conflicts. And it's like it, you're, the, the opportunity to actually put birds in your hand and, and feel like you're doing something really important as far as waterfowl management. It, it can hit, it can hook you up. It really can. And the next thing you know, you're changing your whole career <laughs> whole path. Career path. Because, you, because you got stuck with me, you know, and just because she was all, like I said, getting out there on those goose banders. And I was like, yeah, I want this girl to work for me. And uh, it, it changed, you know, well, it changed things for me, but not nearly as much as it did for her. And uh, it, but it can really do that. Uh, ducks have a way they do be surprised. I've always loved birds, though. I, I grew up doing like 4-H and FFA, that kind of thing. So I grew up handling birds. So handling a goose was like, oh yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, she, she was a natural, and it was really easy for me to, uh, like I said, have her work for me. She was just like, I could just let Shannon go do her thing. She was fine. Um, yeah, it's it's been great. Now you said you've been banding since oh, 20. <laughs> as she as she laughs. So I. I started working for the wildlife division um, at the St. Clair Class Wildlife Area in June of 1987, and I banded my first ducks that year, um, working for the you know the full-time staff that were down there. And um, so yeah, I've been banding ducks a long time. I hired into the state full-time in '94, and um, I would say that duck trapping and duck banding is the only thing I've done every single year that I've ever worked for the division. I mean, I've done a lot of you know, deer check work and goose banding and that sort of thing, but ducks have been something that I've been very fortunate to have done every year that I've been here. So I have handled and banded a lot. <laughs> oh, yes, it's, uh, it's been great. So the question I was going to go to off that, but now it might be reaching too far back. Mm -hmm. Did did any of your viewpoints about you know how you hunt or your your actual waterfowl hunting styles change at all when you started handling them in this sort of way compared mm -hmm. to just hunting them or? I think a lot of my my hunting of um, of ducks in particular has changed uh, somewhat. Uh, they act a lot differently during the summer than they do during the fall. Um, I think one of the things that has struck me as a as a waterfowl hunter, especially a duck hunter, and I prefer to hunt ducks, you know, more than I love hunting geese, but I love hunting ducks, um, is that they are very particular on where they want to spend the majority of their time people you would think that they you know they're moving they're on the move all the time they don't really do that they are um they're they're really uh, they're kind of 
it, once they find that spot, they want to be there. And it can make it really easy once you figure it out to hunt them. Um, in the summer, they're on the move constantly. In the spring, they're on the move constantly. But um, you can learn a lot just about their behavior um, when you're really... I get to do it every day. So I, I'm seeing things that a lot of people don't really get to see. I worked on managed waterfowl areas for a long time before I came to Lansing to do this stuff. So um, you see how those ducks behave, and you can you can have a better appreciation for people who are really successful duck hunters. Uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, but sometimes when they want to be at a certain spot, if you can find it, it's on. And it's, it's just their behavior, how they, how they behave around uh, refuge areas, so to speak. Um, when they want to be there, it's great. Well, we're coming up on an hour now, so I'll give you guys the chance to, yeah. if there's anything, any information you want to say or give at all? or. Um, not really. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. Um, I'm always looking for people to work for me. I mean, I, so <laughs> plug in, Go ahead, plug it away. <laughs> people work for me. We post our jobs in February, and uh, those go out on the uh, state hiring for the seasonal workers. And one of the things that the wildlife division has been struggling with in the last few years is finding people in southern Michigan that will um, work as seasonal workers for us, be it on a game area or um, I get I get a fair number of um, applicants on my summit positions, but um, getting people who are really um, able to do the type of job that we're doing is, is getting harder every year. But our game areas are constantly looking for people that um, can work for the summer. And um, if your if your future is looking at you know wildlife management, uh, summer employment, doing our work is a huge step to be there. I did it for the whole time I was in college and for three years after I graduated. Um, you build that resume and you get the you get that experience and you make a lot of connections that way. And I would be willing to bet the vast majority of people who work full-time for Wildlife Division were seasonal workers at some point, if not for a long time. Um, most of the people that I work with have done it. They did it for years before they got hired in. Um, it's, a great, it's a great experience. You can learn a lot. I, I give it, if, you, if, you are, if you're into wildlife at all, I, I give it high marks. For, you'll learn a lot. It's great. It's a great job. Meeting people is really important. Very important. I can imagine. <laughs> and, it, and it goes both ways. If you're really good, work gets out, and um, you know, or it turns into a job well, in the future. <laughs> right. I mean, so it, it, it's a good example. Is um, her um, researcher Drew down in Louisiana State was in Wisconsin as a waterfall in Upland Bird research file just uh, up there. He was working on Ben's project doing the Wisconsin side of things. So we knew Drew. And then Drew's like, I'm moving to Louisiana State, and I'm bringing on a student to do this, and it's a duck project. And I was like, hey, you know what? Ben and I got on this, and we we're like, so we've got a student for you. And then it was like, hey, Shannon, you want to Louisiana? And she's like, uh. <laughs> so she applies, and this is how this all worked out. But, it, you know, those those kind of connections can, you know, it, it's it, I can't speak enough on, you know, just the networking that you get the chance to do and how that can work out for you down the road. That's, yeah, no, I think that was, that's good. Well, thanks uh, for letting us come out and talk to you guys today, and uh, hopefully we can follow up in a couple of years with the groundbreaking research you're doing. Groundbreaking research. That was great. Appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Thanks, thanks.